The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. What is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Uh, Good morning. My name is Terry Jank, one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church. And um, I have the privilege of uh, sharing the word this morning. And uh, just before I do so, I want to uh, give you a little update on uh, neighborhood groups, which is uh, an initiative that we've been working on this fall. And uh, this past week, the task force met. And um, we're going to see if we get the PowerPoint up so you can see some of this. But uh, we met, and uh, we're about 95% complete as far as organizing the groups. And we're excited about that. Um, Obviously, COVID-19 has put a a damper on our our training. We want to bring the leaders of these groups together before we actually get launched. And so stay tuned. We'll be hopefully able to uh, connect in that way in the coming month. And uh, uh, we've we've heard from several people uh, that are saying yes to being leaders of groups that uh, they see the vision as being fundamentally important to the caring uh, for our body, breaking down the bigger church Sunday morning into the smaller pockets of neighborhoods that we live in. And so may the Lord bless that as we continue. You'll, you'll continue to hear more about it in, in the weeks to come. Well, this morning we're going to be going in again to the book of James. And uh, we're pursuing in that book uh, what matters to God. And indeed, this morning's scripture uh, talks about the evidence of a genuine faith. The passage of scripture that Lyle and Paula read to us James teaches us that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And um, it indeed shows the argument of, uh, of the evidence of faith must be seen. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the characteristics of a faith that does no good. And I want to talk to you about the characteristics of a faith that works. And I want to also demonstrate the unity of the Bible. I want to demonstrate that there's not two messages in this book, but one. And I especially want to talk about it as it concerns two authors in the New Testament, 
James that we're studying this morning and the Apostle Paul. These two guys agree. They don't disagree. And I want to demonstrate that this morning. So beginning uh, today, I would like to start by sharing a couple of illustrations. And one of them comes from the Old Testament, and one of them comes from the 20th century. So to start with, let's talk about the Old Testament kings. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you'll know that, that uh, there came a time, and you can read about this in Kings and Chronicles, but there came a time when the kingdom that was established under David was divided. And in the divided kingdom, there was the, the northern kingdom of Israel with ten of the tribes, and the capital city was Samaria. And in the southern kingdom of Judah had two tribes, and the capital was Jerusalem. And the history of the kings during that, that time of the divided kingdom is probably some of the most sad parts of the history of God's people in the entire Bible. Because as you know, it, it, goes from, it goes good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king. I mean, it's just back and forth. And there are very few bright spots. But one of the brightest spots comes when a boy of eight years of age named Josiah is handed the throne of Judah. And it's an incredible story. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 22 and following. And uh, the thing that was so sad about these days was that the temple had fallen into misuse and disrepair. It had been a long time prior to Josiah when previous kings had no use for worshiping the true living God the way he wanted to be worshiped. And instead, they used the space of the temple for false worshiping. Idols were set up, false gods, and so on. Well, what happened was that at the age of eight, you don't start running, but, but by the age of 16, we read in the Bible that Josiah started to feel his legs as a king. And he decided that he was not going to be one of those kings that did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was going to follow God. But it wasn't until the age of about 20, his 12th year of his reign, when he began to take action. And he began to purge the land of all of its idols and evils and false worshiping. And by the age of 26, which is when we read, pick up the story today in 2 Kings 22, or 22 verse 2, we read, it says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of David, his father. And um, we, we, we see that as they're renovating the temple, they find a book. Okay, they find, a, they find a, an old, dry, dusty book <laughs> as they're renovating the temple, getting it ready for use. And it's none other than the book of the law of Moses. And, and the, the leaders of that renovation go to the priest, and the priest says, this is the law of Moses. And he takes it into King Josiah, and he starts to read the words of the book of the law to Josiah, and Josiah gets off of his throne, and he tears his clothes in grief. And he asks them to go and to find a prophet and inquire of the Lord and ask him, what does this mean? They go and they find a prophetess, a woman at the time, whose name is Huldah. 
And she says to them, in essence, God is going to judge Judah for the wickedness of these generations of evil kings. But because you, Josiah, have humbled yourself and have begun to obey this book, this judgment will not come during your lifetime. And so then Josiah does an incredibly important thing. He calls the entire population of Jerusalem together. And they all meet ahead of the temple grounds, and he has the book of the law read in the presence of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then they recovenant to say, we're going to be doers of the word. We're going to obey this book. We're going to follow God. But, but that's not all that they do. They didn't just say things. They weren't just you know, sayers of the word, they were doers also. They went out, and in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, it says in the word of Scripture that, that they went out and they began the reforms. You can read about it. It takes up an entire chapter. The incredible thing is that they, they tore down all kinds of idle places. They had... Um, they tore down false gods, vessels made for Baal worship, Asherah poles, deposing every false priest from the land, the sun, the moon, and the stars that were being worshipped. They stopped that. They went and got rid of temple prostitutes. They even got rid of certain high places throughout Judah, the whole country of Judah. And they began to stop stopped doing the things that the former inhabitants, the land of Canaan, had, they had adopted from nations around them. They stopped doing it. They started obeying God. They were still, at that time, they were still doing the, the sacrifice of children to the God of Molech. This Judah had been so corrupted by evil, and Josiah had extreme reforms in the time, and there was a revival you see, what happened was that these sweeping reforms, this commitment to a faith that had to be resulting in a doing, in an acting, was a faith with feet, a faith with teeth, a faith that leapt off the pages of the book of the law and grabbed hold of the hearts of the people of God and took them back out into their community and said, we must obey God. We must live changed lives. A dead faith was revived under Josiah. The second illustration I want to share is from the 20th century. It has to do with a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who some of you will know about. I was speaking with Rudy, our pastor of student ministries, this past week, and he's a Bonhoeffer fan, and I think I'm kind of jealous of him because he can actually read Bonhoeffer in German if he wants to. I'm not sure if he is, but uh, I can't do that. And of course, one of Bonhoeffer's most common books that is known is The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer writes this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Indeed, Bonhoeffer did die for his faith and his cause in obedience to the Lord. Now, if you know the history, you know that just years, years before the Second World War, in 1931, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to study theology at Union Seminary in New York City. And he could have established himself not only as a student but as a, as a professor there and had a career, an academic theological career, comfortable in the United States. 
But there were two reasons why he didn't stay at Union Seminary. Number one, he could not handle the liberal and humanistic theology that was gripping the seminary at that time. And number two, he ached for what was going on in his homeland in Germany. He saw the liberal and humanistic, or the political social unrest, sorry, in Germany, and it was so brooding times before Hitler. The National Socialism of Germany, he saw as an attempt to write the history of Germany that left God completely out of the picture. And he could not stay in the United States while that was happening. He abandoned his academic career. He moved back to Germany even before Adolf Hitler became uh, into power in 1933. He began to go on the radio and denounce the political system that made the Fuhrer its idol and its god. He became known as one of the key leaders of the confessional church. He started an illegitimate, illegal Bible institute underground with a group of men teaching them theology and community life. And when the heat started to turn up politically and he was in danger of his life, some of his American friends enabled him somehow to escape from Germany for a season. But even then, he determined he had to go back. And this is what he wrote about that in a letter to a friend. He said, I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And so he returned to Germany. Some years later, he was put in prison, arrested in 1943. Even there, he said he has no regrets of the way he has lived his life. He was executed two years after he was arrested at a concentration camp in Flossenburg on April the 9th, 1945, just a few days before the Allied forces delivered that and liberated that camp. Bonhoeffer writes this, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. A.W. Tozer summed up this way. He said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are at opposite sides of the same coin. Now, why do I share those two stories, take a long time to share those two stories? I share those two stories to put feet on our faith, to to remind us this morning that there has been no time in history when it has been okay to separate the profession of our faith with the possession of good deeds, with a life that is changed, with a life that has the bite of the faith that we profess. There has been no time in history when that has been okay. God has always denounced the idea of separating our faith and our works, our life and our beliefs. And so in the book of James, who is talking about what is the evidence of a genuine faith, who is talking about what matters to God, he is readdressing his audience by saying, brothers, you can't live that way. In fact, have you noticed, if you've read the book of James, he uses the word brethren or brothers 19 times in five chapters. And I've been noticing that that he does it usually when he's kind of readdressing a new subject. 
as he does in the scripture that was read to us today. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for body, what is, what is the good of that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the word for good in this text is the word for profit. It is of no profit. It doesn't profit anybody else, your faith, if it is that way, not accompanied by works. And it doesn't profit you either, this faith. It's dead. It's actually a word that means to, to, to profit gainfully. And if you say to someone, be well, go in peace, and yet do nothing, it's, it's of no profit to them. So what are the characteristics of a faith that does no good? There are three. And the first one is that a faith that does no good is dead. Verse 17 James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me read to you what a commentary states. It is important to remember that the whole passage is framed by the question of a person claiming to have faith and the validity of that claim, not before God, but before other people. This is about a person who is claiming to have faith before other people, but they're, they're not claiming it before God. They're just saying, I have faith. I'm professing believer. That's what they're saying. Here we are not talking about how a doctor knows that a patient in the hospital who is hooked up to a heart and brain monitor has died. Like God, the doctor has access to ways of knowing whether life is present in ways that are not accessible to the average person looking at the patient on the bed. James is talking about how the average person would know whether a person is dead or not. They're not breathing, he says. And that's why in verse 26 of this text, James says, For as the body apart from the spirit, which is the word breath, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. How do you tell the difference between a person who is lying flat on a bed and breathing and lying flat on a bed and dead? How do you know the difference between those two bodies? One is breathing and one is not, he's saying. And he is saying, that breath is the evidence of life, so too works, a life that is changed, a life that is not lived just for you but others, those things are signs that you're breathing, that you're alive, that you have this faith you profess to have. So we are not saved by works, but they are evidence that we are saved. There has been some very bad theology that has gone out about conversion, We've heard it several times in different ways. People who say, well, I know so-and-so, and they had an experience of God back when they were 12 years old. They prayed the prayer. They signed the Gideon grade 5 New Testament. They were baptized. And they, and they point to the assurance of that believer by a one-time experience that they had decades ago. As though that is their ticket for everything in their future. And that is bad theology. And instead of pointing to a changed life, the works of a life that is transformed by the faith that Jesus Christ is, is evidencing, they point to something they did years ago. James would say to these people, 
if there is no breath, if there is no breath coming out of that body, you might want to conclude that that body is not alive. And if there are no works in that person, you might want to conclude that there has not been genuine faith. They remain dead in their sins. You cannot have assurance of someone else's salvation. That's not what James is teaching. But you can make conclusions based on the fact that there is no no walking the walk, only talking the talk. Another characteristic of a faith that does no good is that it is deceitful. It is dead and it is deceitful. Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. What is that all about? Well, what it's all about is that the devil wants you to think that you can believe and not behave. That's what it's all about. The devil is glad for you to think that you can believe a certain thing, have a a, a checklist of beliefs in your head, and behave the way you want 80% of the time in your life. And so it's a deceit. It's a deceitful belief system. Because he says here that the demons believe, the, the, the fallen angels that follow the devil believe that God is real. They know better than we do that this God is real, that he cannot be mocked, and that every creature will reap what we sow. That's what the demons know better than you and I. That every one of us will one day be accountable to God. It's a deception to think otherwise. That you can believe one way and behave another way. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, debating about faith and works is like asking which which blade of a pair of scissors is more important. (laughs) It's it's nonsensical, according to him. A third characteristic of a faith that does no good is that it's futile. Verse 20, do you want to be shown pretty strong language here? You notice this, James calls us fools. James says, do you want to be showing you foolish person that person that a faith apart from works is useless? And the word useless here in the Greek text is argos, which is from a, a word ergon, and it's used several times in the New Testament. Let me just tell you the way the New Testament authors translate it depending on the context. It is translated as careless and lazy and worthless and idle, I-D-L-E, and inactive, and futile, and unprofitable, and useless. <laughs> you get the picture, don't you? This kind of faith is, is in vain. It's useless. It doesn't do anything. James is teaching that faith that is workless is worthless. It has to show in your life. It has to be seen. It does not help anyone including the person who possesses it. That kind of faith is futile. What about the kind of faith that, that works, the kind of faith that is being taught by James? Let's talk about that faith. And the first feature of a faith that works is that it is complete. Whereas a faith without works is incomplete, this kind of faith is complete. And I get that from verse 21, where James is using the example of Abraham. 
And he's using the time of, of, of Genesis chapter 22 when, when Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah and he offers his only son Isaac on the altar that he has created there. He is ready to bring the knife down upon that sacrifice in obedience to what God told him to do when God stops him in mid-flight. And it says in Hebrews 11 that, J- that Abraham reasoned that if God wanted to, he could bring that son back to life, but he'll obey God. He'll put works to the faith that he has. Now, what does chapter 22 of Genesis say, verse 1? It says, now God tested the faith of Abraham. And what is it that we said a couple of weeks ago is the purpose of James writing the entire letter? That the testing of your faith will produce hupomone, perseverance, steadfast endurance, stick to that kind of obedience. See, see what, what is happening here is that James is not talking about the presence of faith here. He is talking about the testing of faith. We need to remember that Abraham was completely justified by his faith way before chapter 22 in Genesis. In chapter 15 it says that, it, that he, was, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 4 of Romans, verse 2, Paul argues that. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But what does it say? It says, no, he, was, he believed God, faith alone and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was a believer, and he was saved before his faith was tested on Mount Moriah. Therefore, when James is saying in verse 21 that Abraham was justified by works, what do we understand by that? It seems like he's contradicting Paul. But he does not mean that he contributed to his salvation, but rather that that works, those works, completed the faith that he started out with in chapter 15. And the word that is used there in verse 22, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. It's it's part of the entire package. This idea is the logical conclusion of the faith that that uh, Abraham had. Adam Clark said, let it ever be remembered that genuine faith in Christ will ever be productive of good works. J.I. Packer said, the truth is that though we are justified by faith alone, that faith that justifies is never alone. (laughs) It always produces fruit, good works, a transformed life. I like that. So we need to remember that James is dealing with, with faith and works in relation to other people, how it's perceived while Paul is talking about how are we right with God. He's not trying to address the issue of how someone becomes a Christian. He's addressing the signs of what are evidencing a genuine faith. And this is different than Paul's purpose in Romans 4. James is in agreement with Paul, I believe. And in the coming year, we're going to start to study the book of Romans, and we're going to look at this very same idea of Abraham and see that James and Paul are in agreement. So Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was not less saved before his faith was tested with with Isaac. His faith simply was not complete until he had it tested. And uh, if if you look at the scriptures, in fact, between chapter 15 of Genesis and chapter 22, do you see all the mistakes that Abraham was making? But he got to a test that he passed. 
His faith was matured. His faith was maturing. Another characteristic of a genuine faith that works is its synergy. What do I mean by this? In verse 22, it is the word for active. That's the word synergy in Greek. Faith was active along with Abraham's works. Some translations could literally say faith was working with works, synergizing with works. They were working together. It's James's way of trying to say that these two twin brothers are inseparable. You can't separate faith and works. They synergize together. They work together in a way that one is not complete without the other. They are joined at the hip. And that's why James quotes from both the experience of, of uh, offering Isaac as well as the experience of being credited as righteousness back in Genesis 15. Because James does not want to be misunderstood as teaching justification by works alone. And then finally, I want to say that James uses two examples. We've talked about Abraham, but in verse 25, he also raises the subject of the woman, the prostitute Rahab in Jericho who it says was justified by works. And uh, how is it that she was justified by works? Again, it is this idea of working together with her faith, of completing what her faith began. And you'll know if you've read the scriptures on that passage that she already testified to those spies that she was hiding that she believed that God of Israel was the true and living God. And she acted on that faith, risked her very life by hiding the spies, sending off the soldiers in a different direction and protecting them. And then later when, when Joshua and the Israelites come and tear down the walls of Jericho, she and her family are spared. She was saved. Not because of her works alone, but because of her faith that was completed and was synergized with her, with her works and faith. And so James says in, in, um, in this passage that God wants us to demonstrate a changed life, that our faith will result in that. Genuine faith always does. Now, some of you might wonder, what, is, what does James mean in verse 14 when he says, can, faith, can such faith save him? And that word save is, is, a, is a pretty strong word in Scripture, although it is used in different ways. And I would like to suggest two interpretations that, that you, can, you can pick one if you want. I think the one way of deciding or describing what James is saying in verse 14 is saying, he's saying, he's, he's begging the question, the answer to the question, no, such faith can't save him. In other words, it's a false faith. It's not genuine. Um, you can't have faith and, and not have good deeds that follow. Your life can't not fit your faith and your profession. <clears throat> but he also could be saying something else. And some authors suggest that he might be referring to the judgment when we will all stand before the Lord on that last day to give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. It says, in that, it says that in 1 Corinthians 3, each one's work will be manifest. Have you been building your life with gold, silver, and costly stones, or have you been building with wood, hay, and straw? And that day will bring it to light because everything's going to be burned with fire. And our good deeds will be seen for what they are. Are they built on a solid faith or a false faith? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, John Piper believes that 
believers are saved by faith alone from the penalty of their sin, but we are going to be judged according to our works and receive eternal rewards based on that. He writes this, James is asking, can a life of faith without good works save or preserve the believer from the poor outcome that awaits him at the judgment seat of Christ? So he's not questioning his eternal salvation in verse 14. He's questioning how good is it going to go? Is it going to save you from a pretty embarrassing day of judgment? Now, that's one interpretation. I shared the other one. I'm kind of leaned toward the first one. I think James is trying to say there is a false faith out there. and You be, need to be careful that you don't own a false faith. <clears throat> I, I've had um, 35 years in full-time ministry. And in those 35 years, there have been some very sad times in ministry and some very hard times in ministry. But I, I cannot think of harder or sadder times than those moments when I have sought to shepherd a people or a person who has a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and is living a completely double life. I had a young gentleman come up to me one time when I was pastoring in Thunder Bay in tears, and he walked up to me and he said, you know something, Pastor? The double life sucks. <laughs> but one of the most sad moments in entire time in ministry since I was a young man was in my first pastoral ministry. And one weekend after a weekend binge in alcohol, a man that we knew named Jim came and, and phoned us up and, and I went out to the reserve where he lived and I met with him and he was a broken man. And he came to know Jesus Christ that day and he began to attend our church and he restored his marriage with his two children and for over a year, I think it was almost two years, Pat and I would go out to his place on the reserve and we would have a Bible study every Sunday night. And I just thought that Jim was growing in his faith. I, I saw a man that seemed to be growing. He, his marriage was doing better, it seemed. His fathering was better. His, his life in the community was better, it seemed. And then there was a time that came when he, his wife phoned and said he was, he was on a binge again. Now that in itself was not an, uh, that alarming because that help happens with addictions. But, but then when we, me and another deacon uh, went out to see him, he didn't want to have anything to do with us. And we began to pursue him in the following weeks. And, and then it <clears throat> began to be clear that his wife divulged to us that she was being beaten and she couldn't stay with that marriage right then. And her kids were afraid and so on. And as we began to gently come alongside of him and ask him, you know, come on, Jim, things have to change. Let us help you. He completely closed the door. A couple of years later, I left that ministry and carried on. I was in another church years later and I remember seeing Jim at a hospital 
and he didn't want to talk to me. I'd asked several leaders to go out and see him in the years of, since that time, and they'd, they'd always got a closed door. He began to live with another woman. He was drinking and partying, and he just he had no signs that he had a faith in Jesus. And my heart was breaking at times, and, and then I heard one day I got a phone call, one of the leaders at the church, and he said, Jim's dead. He died. And, and I, I still wonder today, where's Jim? I am not the judge or jury of Jim's eternal state. And I cannot have neither assurance nor condemnation about Jim's state of faith. Just as you cannot have assurance of someone else's salvation or not having salvation. You can't do that. But I have to say that as James is talking about, that, that this, this body didn't seem to have breath. This faith didn't seem to have works. There was no upomone, this steadfast endurance that stays the course. Yes, we fall off the path sometimes. But when we fall off the path, we get back on. That's the faith in us. The genuine faith of Jesus makes us to want to get back on the path. You see, the, the, the path of life, the path to eternal glory is a sin-killing path. And when we fall off that path, we, we feel the conviction of the God who lives within us by his Holy Spirit, the Jesus Christ that died on the cross, and we've offended him, and it says we are crucifying him all over again. And we feel that, and we get back on the, on the track, and the Father God says, I receive you back, you're my child. But a person that does not have genuine faith does not do that. As I've said to you before, in the parable of the prodigal son, none of the pigs came to their senses. Only the son. And so, friends, rather sober message for a Sunday morning of Thanksgiving. But I want to ask you, what are the signs of a living faith? What are the signs in you? Verse 26 is uh, the scripture that says, could you put that up, uh, that next slide? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And let's pray that God would enable us to be free vessels that he can flow through, that, that the love of Jesus Christ would be seen in us, that the faith that we profess indeed will be, see, be seen as something that we possess corporately together and individually as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We just pray, oh God, that you might be glorified uh, in our lives. And uh, James has a lot of stuff to say, a lot of hard things for us to swallow. Some of the things that are maybe difficult to understand. But Lord, we thank you for the fact that everything that you've called us to do, you will enable us to do that you've prepared a life of good works in advance for us to do, and that we've been saved by your grace and by your mercy, and it's all your, un your favor upon us that saves us, and, and then, Lord, it is your unction within us that enables us to live the life that is changed. So enable us, Lord Jesus, and have your way, and be glorified in this body of believers, and in our lives individually, we pray in Jesus' name.
Lord, we celebrate the truth of those words. We thank you for the pardon for sin and the peace that endureth in every day. And we thank you that that's because of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us, that you would grant us a true and living faith that is based on a, day, a daily understanding of how much we needed you and based and out of which would pour a joy of, of the gratitude for what you have given us. And may out of that faith, uh, may we be a living and breathing example of a life that, that honors you by our words and by our deeds. Uh, God, I pray that you bless this day and this church family as we go from here to celebrate you on this Thanksgiving day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.